So today is the Sunday after Easter. High church traditions call today Low Sunday. And not in reference to attendance, believe it or not. What they, but in, in contrast to the heights of Easter Sunday. But what I find even more interesting is that some church traditions call today St. Thomas Sunday. Because the disciple Thomas, according to the Gospel of John, encounters the risen Lord a week after Easter. A week after every other disciple. The Sunday after Easter. You've probably heard of Thomas before. He's the disciple who famously expressed doubt. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about doubt. Maybe last Sunday, you checked your doubt at the door. Today, I'm asking you to bring it right on in. If you would, follow along as I read from John's Gospel in verse 24. This is God's word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Important detail. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And whenever I get excited about anything, and I mean anything, I try, this is twisted and, and kind of neurotic, but I try to find what's wrong with it. Do you do that? You go on Amazon and the first reviews you look at are the one-star reviews. I try to find something wrong with something good. There are too many counselors in this room, so maybe we could do some group therapy. Why I do that. But there's a nagging in my mind that is constantly saying, this is too good to be true. There must be a catch. What is the catch? And this happens all the time in my walk with Jesus. Uh, Whenever the beauty of Jesus captures me, which is to say, whenever the glory of Jesus sort of envelops me, there is a dark thought close behind. Surely we have made this up. 
I mean, this is just humanity across time projecting their wishes on the sky, right? Elimination of death, elimination of suffering, the final righting of all wrongs. We made this up, didn't we? Surely we made this up. This is too good to be true. Well, let's give that experience a name this morning. Let's call it hopeful doubt. Over and against what we will call cynical doubt. You see, hopeful doubt is not cynical or scoffing unbelief. Hopeful doubt says, this is, this is so good, I'm having trouble believing. I'm afraid it won't be true. Hopeful doubt wants to believe. Hopeful doubt even coexists with true belief. I actually see this in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 41, where Jesus, again, after his resurrection, is showing the disciples his hands and his feet. And there is a phrase in verse 41 that is pregnant with meaning, I think. Luke writes in verse 41, the disciples disbelieved for joy. They disbelieved for joy. It was too good to be true. It was a hopeful doubt. Maybe you're not a Jesus follower with us this morning, but you want to be. You want to be. You have hopeful doubts. That's why you're here. This morning, my Starbucks barista told me she wants to believe. And she would, she says, if she could. And this morning, her words were, it just must not be in the cards. That is a hopeful doubt. Maybe you're a Jesus follower this morning, but you struggle with doubts. It was a book you read or a documentary you saw, or perhaps you've never really recovered from this. It might be intellectual. It might be more emotional in nature, but you have doubts. But the doubts you carry are not cynical stabs at Jesus, are they? They're hopeful doubts. There, it's too good to be true doubts. And if that is you, I think you have a friend in Thomas. And that is not a bad thing. Let's just say this for a second, because I think, unfortunately, Thomas has gotten a bad rap across church history. He is, after all, doubting Thomas. 
You know, if Judas is the arch betrayer, Thomas has become the arch doubter. When I was talking to Josie last week about this text, she's like, nobody wants to be a doubting Thomas. I don't want to be a doubting Josie. I don't want to be a doubting Joe. I'm sure you don't want to be a doubting Thomas. And that's the sort of rap that Thomas has gotten over the time. And so, as a result, I think we ignore our doubts or we gloss over them. Or we capitulate to them entirely. We become like an AA, they call it stinking thinking, all or nothing. But listen, Thomas, as I read him in this text, is not a scoffing doubter. A cynical doubter. He is a hopeful doubter. Remember, he's simply asking for what the disciples experienced earlier. Remember, he is traumatized by the death of his rabbi, his Lord. We read about Thomas in the Gospel of John, and he comes across as a very straightforward guy. Jesus will say, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You want to come along? And Thomas is like, I don't know where you're going. Tell me where you're going, and I'll follow along. He's very straightforward and even bold. It is inappropriate to call him and to characterize him as a cynical doubter. But he hears about his Lord being risen. And what happens? He says, in essence, that is too good to be true. That's a hopeful doubt. That's a hopeful doubt. How does Jesus meet hopeful doubters this morning? How does Jesus meet you with your doubts? Well, first, Jesus sees them. He sees your doubts. I mean, most preachers, when they're preaching this text, I think point out how remarkable it is that the resurrected Jesus can walk somehow into a locked room. And that is interesting. (laughs) But what I would like to do is point out how remarkable it is that the resurrected Jesus sees Thomas's doubts without being in that room. He knows his thoughts. Even to the very detail. I mean, Thomas said, unless I see the marks and place my hand in the side. And then when Jesus enters into this room, if you look at the text, he walks right up to Thomas and addresses every detail of Thomas's doubt. Do you remember King David's cry in Psalm 119? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Jesus is the Lord. And he discerns your doubts. He knows them. He sees them. He is not surprised by them. He is not shocked by them. Dare I say it? He's not disappointed by them. When I was in college, I was ashamed to admit some of my doubts. As a Christ follower, a new Christ follower. And the the culture I was in was very, I would say, triumphalistic in their approach. And it could steamroll some of my raw, honest questions and doubts. And it felt bad 
to be a new Christ follower and yet to wrestle with real, what I would call hopeful doubts. Too good to be true doubts. And then I encountered a book by Dick Kyes called Beyond Identity. And in it, he named my doubts. That's it. He was an observant minister. And he saw my doubts from afar, it felt like. And he named them. And then he gave and spoke convincingly to my doubts. But I will say this. As a young believer with doubts, what was more powerful was less his arguments to my doubts than the very acknowledgement of them. He said, in essence, I see you, Christian, and I see your doubts. And they do not scare me, or surprise me, or shock me. And do you see that is how Jesus approaches your doubts? He sees this every moment of your life. You don't need to hide from him or others your questions and your doubts. He sees them. And it's one thing that he sees them, but it's quite another thing that he sympathizes with you. He doesn't shame Thomas in this text. That's just the blaringly amazing thing about this text. He doesn't shame him. He instead, would you notice how gracious Jesus is to Thomas? In verse 27, Jesus is essentially serving or condescending Thomas. Do you see the grace and just the very action of saying, Thomas, I saw your doubts and now I'm letting you touch the marks. He doesn't go in there and say, how dare you? You should have believed, man. I promised I would raise again. Instead, he comes down to his level and shows sympathy. Religion is humanity in pursuit of God. Jesus turns us upside down because Jesus shows us that God is in pursuit of humanity. <laughs> that God kneels and condescends and washes our doubting feet. Jesus doesn't even rebuke Thomas. Many people interpret verse 29 as a rebuke. And that is because the older translations, frankly, give off that vibe. And so we ignore the heart of verse 29, which is a benediction, a blessing. A benediction to all who believe without seeing. See, Jesus doesn't just see your doubt. He serves you in your doubt. He sympathizes with you. I remember people freaking out when Mother Teresa's journals were published. Because they expressed doubt. And we were surprised by her doubts. We expressed shock by her doubts. But Jesus doesn't do this. He is patient with you. 
And he clearly wants to help you in your doubts. That is his heart for you this morning. If you get anything out of this text, get this. Jesus wants to help you in your doubts. The scars of Jesus testify that he is a suffering servant who sympathizes with you in everything yet without sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus sees your doubts. He sympathizes. But He actually does something more. He sustains your faith in your doubts. This is good stuff. This is when our relationship with God moves from theory to relationship. When we bring to Jesus our doubts and we watch Him and experience Him, Jesus, the living Lord, in body, with scars, still today, sitting at God's right hand, sustaining Our faith. Weak and shot through with hopeful doubts as they may be, as it may be. He is sustaining what he began in you. Whenever you hear Jesus in the Gospels speaking, you can be sure (laughs) that His word actually accomplishes what he says it's going to do. And so if he says, Lazarus, rise up, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, Lazarus is going to rise up. So in this text, when Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? He's going to believe and he believes. In fact, we aren't even sure if he has to touch Jesus like he said he was going to have to do. He believes. And that's your faith. Do you know that? Your faith is a gift from God. Jesus speaks it into our heart like the light before the first day. Believe and we believe it's a miracle. As miraculous as the light on the first day when Jesus spoke that into existence. And then he sustains it. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to complete at the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, did you know that Jesus has you in mind in this passage? In verse 29, He speaks blessing over any believer who didn't get to set their eyes on the risen Jesus. Or place their hands on the risen Jesus. He has you in mind and he speaks benediction over you. He says, blessed be you. Do you think that word is powerful too? It is. In fact, I count it a great grace in this text that I can look at that benediction and I can say, Jesus, you pronounced blessing over me. You promise to sustain my faith. And that gives me comfort. Peter, who was in this room, would later say this. He says, 
to Christians like us, though you have not seen him, you love him. (laughs) Though you do not now see him, reminding us that there will be a day when we actually do see him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Wow. Last week, I was on an airplane with my family, and as it was about to take off, I thought of this great insight by Tim Keller. He points out how on an airplane, there are two kinds of air travelers. We'll call them confident flyers and doubtful flyers. Who's a doubtful flyer. Can I get an amen? I mean, you are like that pilot. I see him. He didn't get good sleep tonight. Uh, He's probably incompetent. This is like, you know, his first flight. I wonder if everything's working. His co-pilot better be amazing. And then as you start to take off, you know, your hands are like gripping the armrest and there is sweat pouring down your back. And then somehow there's like, you know, Joe Schmo over here reading The Economist, which is, you know, The Economist. The only time you read The Economist is on an airplane. But reading The Economist, and he's just chilling, ordering a drink. That's a confident flyer. Both are placing their faith in the pilot. catch that there's confident flyers and there's doubtful flyers they're both on the plane so their safety and their transport isn't really contingent upon the strength or the confidence of their faith is it but the strength and the confidence of the pilot object of their faith is what matters. Not the strength of their faith. Jesus sees your doubts. He sympathizes with them. And he even sustains you in your doubts. He, in other words, got you on the airplane and he's flying it. What does this mean for you this morning as we close out? Well, I see four things. I want to encourage you to consider four things out of this text. And the first is this. Uh, Quite simply, own your doubts. Own them. Don't hide from them anymore. Um, Don't be intimidated by them. If all truth is God's truth, uh, then when we own our doubts, we begin to explore answers that could give us rest in our minds and in our hearts. Number two, though, take your doubts to Jesus. If this text tells us anything, it's that Jesus has a sympathetic posture to hopeful doubters. Okay? Uh, If he's sympathetic to Thomas, I'm guessing his character doesn't change. That's that's like a a basic. (laughs) That's a basic 
point about Jesus. His character doesn't change. And so if he's this way about Thomas, he is this way today with you. You can take your doubts to him. And remember that you're bringing these doubts to a Savior with scars. He suffered. And so he knows your weaknesses and your, and, and, and your sufferings. And he knows your struggles. He died for your rank unbelief. He, he, he has scars to prove that he is not intimidated by your unbelief. He is, in fact, uh, committed to your belief. He can be trusted. Number three, process your doubts with Jesus' followers. I have a friend who struggled and continues to struggle with crippling doubt, debilitating doubt. And he resolved uh, to bring them to the church body instead of keeping them to himself. He wasn't a scoffing believer, trust me. He was a hopeful doubter. And as he did that, he was welcomed by others and therefore helped by others who had the gift, for instance, of apologetics. Who could hear those doubts without freaking out and say, hey, you know what? I think this might be something to think about or to consider. You know, I think there's something in your thinking that's getting you off base here. And they have the gift to sort of do that with grace and humility. And then there's others in the body who have the gift of prayer and intercession and who are just lifting this brother up every single day. Oh Lord, keep him in your love. Keep him in your love. And you see, there are millions of gifts that we have been given by God. You know that, right? And the gifts are for you. They're for others. And so if you're not sharing your struggle with doubt to the church community or to your home group, then... In a very real sense, people aren't, you know, God gave the gift of fill in the blank to serve you in that doubt. And so I would encourage you to process your doubts with the church. And then finally, I think this text encourages us to respect the doubts of others. Jude, after all, said, be merciful to those who doubt. Do you, first of all, know why your friends don't believe? Do you know? Is it a scoffing disbelief? Or is it a hopeful disbelief? Are they saying in their hearts, do you even know? I would believe this, but it's too good to be true. And how could you, by God's empowerment, be simply an ear to hear them process their Doubts with you. What an amazing opportunity to share your doubts with them. And how Jesus has brought you to belief and confession like Thomas. By grace. Be grateful for your friends who have honest doubts. Be grateful. See their doubt as a gift to your faith. Their doubts keep you honest, don't they? Keep you engaged. I think the grace of faith requires that we be merciful to them also. 
As I said, Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. If our faith is sustained by Jesus, then we must not stand in superiority over those who do not believe. Jesus meets our doubts. He sees them, he sympathizes, and he sustains in your doubt. He sustains your faith. Now, we may not be able to touch the scars on Jesus' hands, but we do have this morning his word of power, don't we? And he might be saying to you today, do not disbelieve, but believe. And today, by his word of power, you can believe. You may not be able to place your hand in his side, but you do have his benediction. You have his blessing. Jesus says over you now and over your heart now, blessed are you. Blessings on you who believe and do not see me. He's committed to your faith more than you are. And we may not be able to see him with our eyes yet, but we do have his advocate, his Holy Spirit, uh, who according in, to John 16, Jesus says it's better that we have the advocate than even the physical presence of Jesus. Why? Because the advocate comes, the Holy Spirit comes and gives us faith and unites us to the risen Jesus. Not the idea of Jesus, the risen bodily Jesus with the scars. That Jesus, the real Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. The Holy Spirit unites us to him and to everyone united to him as well. And we can have peace that transcends understanding. And we can have knowledge, the scriptures say, of him. And we can have fellowship with Jesus. So we may not see him with our eyes, but we have his advocate this morning. See his commitment to you? It's great. And more far-reaching than you realize. Like Thomas, let's believe. Lord, Uh, Let's be a church that takes everything to you, our sin and our doubt. And as we do that, could we experience the gracious condescension that Thomas does in this text 2,000 years ago? And could we, like him, cry out, my Lord and my God? Or even as the Father, earlier in John's Gospel, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.